2: This edition of the BBC Music Magazine podcast is sponsored by Adagio, the leading streaming service for classical music. Discover Adagio's tailor-made search, expert playlists and exclusive recordings for yourself. Visit podcast.idagio.com and enjoy 14 days for free.
1: So welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm the magazine's editor, Oliver Condy. And before we get started, a reminder that the November issue is out now, which brings me to our special discount for podcast listeners. You can all now get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost to just £25.15. And you can claim the offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com slash podcast. Don't forget our website at classical-music.com where you can read about all the latest music happenings, see thousands of reviews, enjoy our free download of the week and a good deal more. Plus we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and we have an iPad edition available on the App Store. And finally, do sign up to our newsletter via the website.
2: The BBC Music Magazine Podcast
1: And with me in the studio today are managing editor Rebecca Franks and reviews editor Michael Beak. Hello. Hello. Music, music,
2: music,
1: music. So, indeed, it's time for music news. Rebecca, tell us what's been happening.
0: Uh, one of the stories that caught my eye recently was that the London Symphony Orchestra and Sir Simon Rattle have announced they're going to open an East London Music Academy uh, for young musicians um, from diverse and disadvantaged backgrounds who show exceptional promise. Um, this came, uh, so Rattle described why they're doing this. And for him, a key question is, why do our groups of classical musicians not look like London looks and what can we do about it Um, and they so decided to take this proactive step to set up an academy for 11 to 18 year olds involving 10 London boroughs including two of London's poorest boroughs Tower Hamlets and Hackney and two of the least poor Bexley and Havering um, to really give musicians uh, young musicians an opportunity to develop and work with some of the best musicians in the country and I think with potentially kind of opening up a kind of pathway for mm. for them to, to potentially feed into the London Symphony Orchestra in, in later years.
1: It's quite a potent mix, isn't it, Rattle and the LSO? Because the LSO has always had a great track record of sort of going out to communities ever since particularly, actually, it moved into LSO St Luke's and had the ability to stage all that kind of activity. But Simon Rattle's sort of one of his, I think, big things about coming back to London was to get involved with this kind of project.
0: Yes, he's a, one of those conductors who really... Um, he doesn't just stand up in front of the orchestra and and do the the conducting again. that i mean obviously he has to do that quite a key part of the of <laughs> the job but as you say he's really invo- sort of seems to be um championing being involved with the communities that the orchestra is, sort of, immediately serves, definitely, and it's
2: a long, long game as well, isn't it? It's not just sort of a, an immediate sort of result that they're looking for. This is looking far into the future to sort of change the sort of the makeup of the orchestra in the years to come.
0: Yes,
1: and East yeah. London—it's great to see East London. You know, obviously, we had the Olympics, so there's a lot of East London was redeveloped, and then we had also the the BBC's new space is being built in East London. Um, yeah. So, and then this project—it's nice to see sort of things traveling a little bit east. I mean, I know London's only one city but still it's a big city and
0: it's a flagship orchestra as well isn't it in a way for for the city mm-hmm. i mean there are lots of orchestras that i'm not trying to suggest that the others aren't mm-hmm. equally important but um it sets an
1: example i think i think it for does. Other cities to, yeah. to do more other than the immediate vicinity to their concert halls which yeah. can be slightly you know richer, more wealthy
2: definitely and i was chatting to um, the ceo of nashville symphony orchestra recently and they've got a very similar program called accelerando and that's that's where they're shepherding young talent through schools oh, into conservatories to Change that talent pool in in sort of years to come. So it's it's obviously something that lots of other people are thinking about.
0: And I think there's something as well about a, a working professional, you know, practicing musicians coming in and, and working with young students. Because I know there are, you know, there are obviously the, the music colleges in London with these junior departments, and there are there are bursaries and all that kind of thing available for for people to go to those colleges. But there's something about, I think, yeah, having that connection with an orchestra that, that's out there that could be invaluable in providing opportunities later on in, in careers, which is actually one of the hardest things, I think. Yeah.
1: So here's, in fact, a bit of Simon Rattle on the LSO performing some Haydn to bring us to the next story.
2: So did the LSO's performance bring you out in goosebumps Michael? Yes, well it it, it did actually. <laughs> um this is uh, relating to uh, a news story recently. Yet another study if we if we need another study about these things. Um looking at the human reaction to music and whether it, you know creates a physical response, goosebumps, chills, those sorts of things. And this was done at the University of Southern California. And what they've discovered based on the 20 people, so not a huge amount of people, is that uh, people who experience chills to music or goosebumps, those kinds of things, actually have a higher volume of uh, fibres between their uh, neurological cortex and the emotional centres of the brain.
1: But wasn't there an entirely separate study at the Reading Festival that suggested that people who have goosebumps also earn more and are more creative and uh, actually whether those two go together, earn more and be creative, I have absolutely no idea. Also,
0: I was (laughs) curious about that because I think the the demographic of Reading Festival is mostly... Teenagers, so mm. I don't know necessarily how helpful that mm. is I for your, your wage earning.
2: And it's a different kind of music as well. I don't think at the Reading Festival that you, you true. You'll, you'll get the English Chamber Orchestra. But um. and what I found interesting about this, this Californian study was the the participants selected the music they were listening to. So they, you're almost pre sort of formed to sort of know that you're going to react to it, perhaps because it's maybe something they, they love or that they are connected to in some emotional way. So it might be more interesting to play the music that they don't know.
1: I mean, everyone gets goosebumps, whether it be theater, whether it be looking at a piece of art, whether it be listening to music, I mean it's not a you know goosebumps are as you say a neurological or auditory
2: sort of response,
0: but do they mean actual goosebumps like physically being able to see the goosebumps on your
2: I think I think they're using it body. loosely, so they call it chills, so it's if you okay. just if you physically react
0: because I think in, some in people some do sort of have way. like a real physical reaction don't they, where. Mm like the hair on their on the skin kind of stand up, don't they? True, But well. that's quite extreme. It is. A I don't wonder why we feel the need to
2: get to the bottom of these things because it should just have a nice sense of mystery and magic about it, don't you think? <laughs> Although I quite like the
1: idea of earning 12% more. Goosebumps, <laughs> yeah, frankly. I mean, not? I'm all for exactly. Talking of goosebumps, um, I had a, a tour around the Royal Opera House's uh, new revamped foyer and, and limber theatre recently, and that's my new story this month. Um, so the Royal Opera House is, is a to try and sort of open up its space, much like the South Bank has done very successfully, I think, over the past decade or so, which is to bring people in, have a cup of coffee, use it as meeting space, but also see the kind of activity going on around the Opera House. And, and there's so much going on, you know, rehearsals, people being called for rehearsals, and I think that kind of stuff over the tannoy will still be heard. You know, can we have Rolando Villas on, please, for Act 2, Scene 3? You know, such and such to make up. I think it's an exciting uh, it'll be an exciting porthole, I think, onto the, onto the daily goings-on at the Opera House, and it looks fantastic. It really does.
0: The new theatre, yeah.
1: The new theatre and also the spaces. Mm. There's a sort of this American walnut, I was told, which is beautiful brown wood dark brown wood and lots of travertine stone on the floors and it's very smart. And I, lots I of venues
2: are doing things at like this aren't they? To, to draw more people in and to obviously to make sort of more income which is obviously vital for their sort of survival as well. Selling yeah. coffee and cake is well, as I important as I hope it's slightly
0: sometimes. more affordable coffee and cake at the Opera House is my <laughs> one comment. <laughs>
2: Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I, I,
1: I, but but I, th- I was quite surprised that it hasn't been open before. It's
0: a wonderful mm-hmm. space. Yeah. It is
1: a wonderful space and it's it's shut up until late afternoon when, when the audience has come in and it is a it, I think it's been a missed opportunity. So I'm very pleased that someone has said, why aren't we, why aren't we catering for the public mm. that passes? I mean, millions of people pass the door of the Opera House sure. every, every month.
2: Exactly. And those people who wander in for a coffee or a cake might then go to buy a ticket at some point. So it's, it's getting new people through mm. the door. And the Liberty Theatre's is looking fantastic. It now looks like a proper mini opera house now, rather than much more of a
1: studio theatre. It's now looking sort of, you know, it's got that traditional horseshoe look with the, again, this beautiful walnut. I mean, it's it's really gorgeous now. I think it was fifty million pounds they spent, so nice. a lot of money.
0: I think that's really exciting because I think you need to have those spaces where you can put on smaller opera or contemporary opera or shorter opera, because again, when we think about thing of pathways for getting. With, with orchestras, but I think the same is with, with opera and with the creators of opera and performers of opera and, and visitors to opera, to have alternatives or ways of leading people in to perhaps mm. going mm. to see a Definitely.
1: And if that second space is slightly sort of a bit ramshackle and a bit sort of down at hill, which I think Limbury was by the end of its sort of first life, yeah. uh, then I think it suggests that, oh, we'll just put the less good stuff Sure. In the Limbury. And now it just it feels like a, a chamber opera house.
0: Mm. I'm excited it to go visit it. Yeah. <laughs> this
1: so let's kick off this month's magazine with an extract from our cover CD because the cover CD ties in directly with our main theme this month. <laughs> So that was Jack Diebeck on the violin with the BBC Concert Orchestra conducted by Barry Wordsworth and that's uh, one track in our Virtuoso violin cover CD which is with this month's issue Uh, It's an issue uh, with Paganini on the cover, so an explanation of the mystery and the virtuosity and the devilishness of Paganini. Um, An article which is fascinating, and as much as Julian Haylock, our writer, really explains the sort of technical sort of know-how really behind Paganini's extraordinary playing um, and the sort of various social uh, reactions to him. And there's also a second feature in which uh, we talk about the slightly less uh, glamorous places that Paganini came to later in life – Manchester, Edinburgh, Chichester, Lincoln, Shrewsbury, not the kind of places that you'd necessarily see a world-class virtuoso back in the 19th century travel to.
0: Um, Although Liszt, he did those tours, didn't he, as well, of England? They sort of... They put in the work. <laughs>
1: they did, and, Rat they did Man, and Ratmaninoff too. When well, he came to Bristol, of course, a couple of times. In fact, Ratmaninoff did. Ratmaninoff did. That's yeah.
2: Of I love stories like that because it really makes yeah. them seem slightly more human. You know, these sort of sort of deify composers, a little bit, and you sort of imagine yeah. they're sort of far off and the sort of not sort of you know attainable, but mm. actually coming to this country and doing tours of our little cities. It's kind of amazing.
0: I know. I think Lis went to, to up to Cheltenham and played in a venue there that's now um, a, a branch of a bank. I think <laughs> you can go in there and think. Right, oh, Liszt played here once. Absolutely. <laughs> <brilliant.
1: laughs> Absolutely, and I think you know what's what's extraordinary is that um, you know he still had it in those days. You mm-hmm. know he still had the remarkable technique. I mean, he he died not long afterwards, um, but was still trying to cashing in with these concerts. Uh, but going back to the main feature, you know, what's extraordinary is, is is the the reception was that he not only was technically brilliant but had the sweetest tone. I mean, he was an all round brilliant musician. I mean, he he was he had he
0: had it. That's interesting because actually the reception of Liszt was quite different. You know, he was seen to maybe be kind of cashing in and being a bit of a superficial celebrity in a way because he had had the technique but people thought he was, you know, a bit vulgar. <laughs> and They really divided the critics. I mean, that was probably changing taste in, in, in England at the time as well, sort of mm. development of mm. concert behaviour and all that kind of thing. But it's, it's fascinating that these big virtuosos, the kind of the legendary status they have in our... Um, concert culture, really.
1: I don't think he's the easiest man. I think he was taken to court because he wouldn't pay his agent. Oh, really? So (laughs) I think he was taken to court and the agent won, thank goodness. But, um, you know, I don't think the agent was, you know, he only won his fee. He didn't get any compensation. So So you can read all about Paganini and uh, listen to a wonderful cover disc in our November issue, which is out now. So here's a clip to bring us on to the next feature. So, Rebecca, tell us about Ethel Smythe.
0: Yeah, so that was an extract from her Concerto for Violin, Horn and Orchestra. So that was actually from 1926. Um, And we've got a a lovely feature on her in the November issue written by Kate Kennedy. And essentially, we wanted to mark uh, the centenary of the Representation of the People Act. And what better kind of way to do that than a portrait of the British composer and militant suffragette Ethel Smythe? And... This is just a really colourful and vivid feature about her, uh, sort of looking at her involvement with the fight for women's rights and her own experience as a female, female composer in a male-dominated world at that time. And it kind of explores... Um, I mean, she was an important figure in that movement. She actually wrote The March of the Women, which became the anthem of the Women's Social and Political Union. And She took two years off composing to um, dedicate to, to, to fighting for women's rights. Um And, yeah, as I say, it's just a very colourful piece with lots of lovely historical detail, um, really... Sort of telling that story.
1: I think it's also important to realise that she was a fine composer. I mean, you know, uh, obviously uh, a very dedicated and, and she had a huge amount of determination and spirit oh, to, yes. to actually get this, to help get this movement through. But her music is, as you can hear, very beautiful.
0: It is. I mean, I love one of the details that when she was a, a teenager, she, you know, she wanted to be a composer, but her father wasn't too keen on that. And she wanted to go and study in Germany. And again, he wasn't too keen on that. So she just went on strike. <laughs> it was an early strike. She just, you know, wow. wouldn't go to church, wouldn't. Go out and come down for meals, just stay in Durham. <laughs> and she ended up going to Leipzig when she was 19 and studying, and she met Brahms and Clara Schumann. But how many
1: composers wouldn't have been composers if they'd listened to their parents? I mean, there were countless stories of, oh, well, you will be a lawyer, or you will be an accountant, or you're going to the family firm. I mean, gosh, you know, I wonder how many composers that, yeah. that, have, that were stopped, in fact how I many we didn't have because of the, the parental pressure.
2: My favourite story in that piece is uh, the one from Thomas Beach when he visited her, visited her in prison. And she's waving a toothbrush out the window, conducting her march to the women
0: below.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah, fact that she played brilliant. the organ in the chapel on Sundays yeah, in
1: the prison. it's great. What a know.
2: great character. Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> no, and, and, and in terms of composition as well, you know, she was the first woman to have an opera performed at the New York Met. And just for context, it was over a century before another by a woman would be performed there, so in recent years. Um, she became Dame Ethel Smythe. and yeah, she just her spirit, her real passion and spirit, really comes across in this piece.
1: Michael, we're going to talk about the recording of the month now. Um, yeah. Should we have a clip first? I think absolutely. We, why not? Um...
2: That was uh, Le Gibe from uh, Gaspard Nui. By uh, Maurice Ravel, that's on our recording of the month disc, which is De la Nuit uh, by Varjon. Vajon. Uh, it's been described as unremittingly beautiful by uh, David Neese, who did the review for us, and I agree. It's it's thrilling, the storytelling involved. It's a, it's a mix of uh, Schumann, Ravel, and Bartok, and it's it's all it's all tales and it's all fantasy and it's all sort of darkness and it's it's absolutely lovely. Um, and, and being ECM, it's beautifully recorded as yeah, well. Yeah, it is a beautiful recording. I
0: um, love the atmosphere on that. That yeah, really yeah, kind of The, 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 bruising, the kind of the Darkness. Yeah, about.
2: really, really brooding. And that sort of says it all for the, the whole disc. Obviously, it's beautiful as well, but it, it, there are some really wonderful, sort of dark, murky moments. The programme is really fascinating. I mean, you've got uh, Schumann's
1: Fantasie Stücke, you've got obviously the Ravel, which we've heard, and you've got Bartok's Im uh with all these wonderful sort of noises of the outside and the sort of the, the, the crickets and the birds mm-hmm. and the,
2: you know, it's, it's beautiful stuff. Yeah. It's very evocative. Absolutely. It's proper storytelling through music, which I love.
0: There's something about the night as well in music that's mm. such a kind of rich seam of inspiration for composers. And as you say, can evoke so many different things. And he's a wonderful pianist, isn't he?
2: He
1: really is. Yeah, wonderful. She also has Alice Sarah Ott's Nightfall. Uh, yes, recording recently they, oh, yes. a couple of people seem to be captivated by the night <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that I mean that's also got a
2: beautiful performance of Ravel's Gaspard yes, in it so, uh, yeah.
1: so it seems to be the flavour of the month actually. definitely and
2: actually I asked um, Dinesh uh, on the phone um, what the attraction and the appeal of that piece is and I asked if, it, if it's the challenge of it because it is a challenging piece yeah. uh, and he says uh, it's, it's not the challenges of course that are attractive but he said the challenges are that the difficulty should not be heard and that it is really like telling a story
0: mm. it is I, I did a lot of listening for that for are um, building a library piece on Ravel a, a while ago. Mm. And, um, I mean, it's it's just such a tough piece to play. <laughs> so it really is. But then you have to be able to turn it into a story and to bring out the poetry of each of those movements. Otherwise, it's sort of pointless. So, yeah, mm.
2: but tough ask. <laughs> but a real treat. <laughs> the BBC Music Magazine Podcast This edition of the BBC Music Magazine podcast is sponsored by Adagio, the leading streaming service for classical music. Discover Adagio's tailor-made search, expert playlists, and exclusive recordings for yourself. Visit podcast.adagio.com and enjoy 14 days for free. Four.
1: So this is the part of the podcast where we talk about the recordings that have captivated us over the past couple of weeks. And I have to say, this one has been on constant loop. Uh, so mine is the is the latest recording by pianist Vikinger Olafsson on Deutsche Grammophon. And it's a beautiful recording of original works and arrangements of music by J.S. Bach. Um, I, I just love the selection, really. I just think that... It's such a sort of slightly original mix. You you normally have the sort of the same old same old on some of these, but the very fact that he's mixed these arrangements with some preludes and fugues and a, and a, and a, and a sort of a set of variations in the middle, which actually I didn't know, um, is 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 very welcome. So I've chosen the first movement from the Organ Trio Sonata Number Four, which has been arranged by a chap called August Stradal, and I think it's just absolutely mesmerising. Was Viking was Vikingur uh playing the uh, arrangements of Bach's Organ Trio Sonata Number Four. Um, absolutely gorgeous. Um, Rebecca, what have you brought to the table?
0: I have brought a disc of string quartets: uh, Shostakovich's Number Eight in C Minor and Schubert's uh, Number Fourteen in D Minor, which is his Death and the Maiden String Quartet. Um, and they're played by the Aris Quartet, and it's on Genuine Classics. Um, and um, the Aris Quartet. Have just become BBC New Generation Artists actually, and they've recorded a few a few discs before. And I was just listening to this for a review for um, I'll be brief notes section um in this in this magazine, and I was just really struck by um the sort of uh, the commitment and the force and uh, sort of personality of their playing really. And these two works are kind of both haunted by death really. Rostekovich <laughs> is. Um, well, it was written after he'd been in Dresden and he was so kind of um, in 1960 uh, sort of documenting the destruction of, of the city in the Second World War um, and obviously really hit home. And also it was when he'd been struggling with a lot of suicidal thoughts as well. So it's sort of been seen as a sort of his own requiem or his own... Um, sort of suicide note in a way mm. and then the Schubert so that's obviously called Death and the Maiden which um, based on, on the poem that, that you hear in the second movement and also he was sort of facing his own sort of shadow of death was sort of close with him with his illness and heading towards the end of his life so cheery yes. what are we going to hear then? <laughs> Cheery. <laughs> we're going to hear the Allegro Molto from uh, the Shostakovich which is the second movement <laughs>
2: Michael, what have you chosen this month? Uh, So I've chosen a new release on Onyx uh, Records. Uh, This is uh, a selection of music by Arvo Pett, uh, performed by Victoria Mulliver. Uh, And she's performing with the Estonian National Symphony Orchestra under uh, Paavo Jervi. It's uh, a delightful selection. Some of the obvious players are there, Fratres and Spiegel and Spiegel. Um, But the centrepiece is really the Tabula Rasa, which is just stunning. Um, It's sort of, it's seesaws, it's kaleidoscopic, which, you know, Pet. Is quite a lot, which I absolutely love it. Um, so the, the piece I've chosen is is part one of the, uh, the tabula rasa uh, ludus. And quite meaningful in as much as it's sort of Estonian music performed by Estonians. Absolutely. And they recorded it in the presence of the composer. So that's even more special, I think. was uh, Ludus, part one of Tabula Rasa, performed by Victoria Mulliver, and uh, second violinist Florian Donderer with the Estonian National Symphony Orchestra and Paavo Yefi.
1: Absolutely stunning. So that
2: brings us to the end of this
1: month's podcast. Join us for the December Issues podcast in a few weeks' time. So it's goodbye from me and goodbye from everyone else.
2: Bye-bye. The BBC Music Magazine Podcast